0: Welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first Move Daily Health Podcast episode of 2020. As always, I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and today we'd like to welcome back to the show Dr. Sue and Dr. Donna to discuss the topic of winter health. As a quick reintroduction, Donna and Sue have been practicing medicine in the greater Toronto area for 26 and 29 years, respectively. Both work in family medicine and have experience working with people of all ages and populations. So we're grateful that they agreed to join us again for another chat. Donna and Sue, welcome back to the Move Daily Health podcast. And thank you for helping us kick off our 2020 schedule.
0: Thanks, Dane. (laughs) Nice to be here. So how did the end of your years wrap up?
1: I hear somebody was in Cabo.
0: (laughs) Yes, in fact,
2: uh, I'm uh, a little under the weather at the moment because of a delayed flight. So I'm operating on uh, less hours of sleep than usual. Um, So forgive me if my my brain is a little uh, behind what it should be.
0: You're not working with patients today, so it's okay.
1: Exactly. We're just having a nice little chat here. No big deal. And what about you, Donna? How was the end of year uh, 2019?
3: It wrapped up well, but I uh, had a few walk-in shifts at my uh, clinic that were on my schedule towards the end of the year, a little bit more than usual. They were grouped together. So I have a pretty good window on what's happening out there on the infectious diseases front. (laughs)
1: Perfect. That's (laughs) what we're going to dive into today.
3: So um, what we're hoping
0: to discuss today are elements of winter health, and we'll run through a whole bunch of small and larger topics and key takeaways that patients, clients, people can be aware of with colds and flus. The basics that you think we've all experienced at some point in our lives. Can you give us a quick rundown on the myth of whether you do indeed starve a flu and feed a cold or the other way around? What the best protocol is there?
3: Well, I think the number one first step is regardless of what else is going on in the season and the demands of the season is get more rest and get fluids. Sue's nodding her agreement. So, I mean, people often notice when they're not well, their appetite's not great. I don't think if we're, we don't have much appetite, it's not so much that you starve a cold and feed a fever or the other way around, so much as you make sure you're well hydrated, make sure you're getting enough sleep, and when you feel like eating, you have something to eat. And don't be surprised if you don't have much of an appetite and you don't eat if you feel a little more tired and a little kind of lightheaded because that goes with the territory, both of the illness and of, you know, not really being up on your energy intake for a while.
1: So how do you tell the difference between a cold and a flu, for example? Because I know sometimes when people will come down and get super, super sick and think they have the flu, but they don't have any, you know, gastro symptoms, they won't be throwing up. Is that then a cold or is that a flu? And do you treat that differently or not?
2: So there's two things. The first is cold versus flu first of all. So a cold essentially is, there's a lot of upper symptoms. So there's a lot of congestion, there's coughing, there's sore throat, there's potentially a little bit of fever. And you basically feel, you know, you can kind of, you can force yourself to go through your day, but you're going to feel kind of yucky about it pretty much. A flu is actually very, very different. And flu can actually, interesting what you said, Dane, but flu really does need to be divided into upper respiratory versus gastro, they are actually quite different. So usually when we say cold versus flu, we're talking about respiratory. So when you're talking about flu in that sense, It's very different from a cold because you essentially feel like you've been hit by a truck. You cannot get out of bed in the morning. You've got high fever, you've got a headache, you know, and generally speaking, a lot of times with a flu, something like Advil or Tylenol is really not going to make a dent in how you're feeling. So really the most you can do for it is rest. You can take the Advil and Tylenol, lots of fluids, but for the most part, you're going to feel really miserable for about three to four days and it will last for, Two, for about two weeks for the most part for 10 to 14 days whereas a cold you know you as I said you can drag yourself out of bed you can do what you need to do if you must it's not a great idea and you you know you can take any sort of over-the-counter stuff which isn't going to necessarily make it go away any quicker but uh, you might feel a little bit better while you're doing things viral gastro is very di- Donna maybe I'll let you take over viral gastro is actually a very different beast
3: Yeah, so that's not associated with respiratory symptoms. It often doesn't have much of a fever, although it might have a little bit. And it more often is predominantly diarrhea with a decrease in appetite and some vomiting compared to say food poisoning, which is where you're not really sure which end of your body needs to hit the toilet first, right? It's quite dramatic. Super fun. (laughs) Yes. Although norovirus itself can present like that. And that's often very short lived. But quite dramatic. Worst day of my life. (laughs) Most viral gastroenteritis is a little more subtle than that Uh, lasts anywhere from three days but can last some of the symptoms for up to two weeks so people often present when they've had diarrhea for like more than a week and wonder if there's something more going on and most often that's not the case so uh, unless they've been traveling outside the country I usually suggest just give it a good two weeks but really modify your diet. So most of the time when people have a stomach flu, just where the confusion in terms often comes in, it really is just... You know their gut is kind of taken over by the virus and they need to keep their fluids up but not worry too much about eating food and when they do eat food to just eat stuff that's very easily digested strikingly i often i'm seeing people in the clinic who come in and they've had a stomach bug for a few days and they're started they were starting to feel better and they come in because they you know had more diarrhea and maybe another round of vomiting and when i asked them what they ate they like the number one go-to for a lot of people is burger and fries Oh. And I've actually started recommending that people not start with that. And they go, Oh, you know, I was just thinking about that. It's like, no, do not do that to your poor system that's still trying to recover. There's
0: something funny about that in a weird reward sense, because we see the same thing after like athletic events where, granted, it's very different than a stomach flu, but people have this idea of having been deprived and they want like the hardest to digest thing mm-hmm. and even though metabolically you've done a crazy event in the case where it's a strength event or an endurance event your gut is at its worst time to be able to digest anything complex like that much like after a flu yeah. so it's like have cooked white rice like overcooked white rice <laughs> <laughs> don't go for the raw vegetables they'll probably be up chucked again go for applesauce yeah. This yeah. is probably the only time to eat white things.
3: Yes, yes exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: exactly. I've had many clients over the years who are doing their best to eat a lot of vegetables and get their protein up and then they get sick and they're, they're trying to keep eating that while they're sick. And I'm like, you can stop that anytime you want. Get some yeah. Rice Krispies in you. Yeah. Just get whatever yeah. is yeah. simple yeah. Yeah. and then get back to bed.
3: Yeah, right. Right. I often tell people, don't eat stuff with edges. Perfect. Don't eat raw vegetables. Nice. Cook them really, really well, more than you normally would, right? Don't eat many kinds of raw fruit unless they're like quite soft. But I do often recommend things like applesauce or canned Mm -hmm. vegetables that have been processed somewhat so that the skins are off and they've been cooked to a certain extent. Just because, you know, it just gives the gut a little bit more of a chance to not be further irritated while it's trying to recover from what the virus has done to it.
1: Yeah, and, and this is really where that intuitive piece comes in. The gut is not wrong. <laughs> like they say, trust your gut. Mm, if your yeah. gut is sending you signals that you really shouldn't eat something and maybe you should just go lay down, mm-hmm. you always need to listen to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. The challenging part is when ego gets in there. Is like, yeah, but a pizza would be really good right now.
1: (laughs) I know that game.
0: (laughs) So back to the note about flus and colds, when should somebody go seek out help? Because we find that a lot of people will go in really early when they have an upper respiratory flu and they'll force themselves out of bed, drag themselves into a clinic just to be told you really should stay in bed.
3: Well I've certainly seen a lot of that in the last two weeks (laughs) and what I would say is if you can barely get out of bed and it's the first few days of something it's more likely to be an influenza or influenza-like illness and there's not anything I can do for you so stay in bed get more rest. The other thing is if you have a cold and you're on the first few days of a cold there's nothing I can do for you. I mean, we were joking before this started, but it was actually because a patient suggested to me, you need a magic wand, because that's pretty much the only thing that might make a difference. So I started asking a number of years ago when people were coming in pretty early on, you've had lots of colds in your lifetime, you know, they last seven to 10 days. What's different about this one that's bringing you in today? so i do have people who come in who have underlying conditions and they have a tendency to develop pneumonia more readily Mm -hmm. you know so people who have asthma or copd or heart conditions or are immunocompromised it might be more reasonable for them to get checked earlier if they have more than just simple cold symptoms Mm -hmm. you know if they're developing a fever after a few days if they're coughing up colored phlegm uh, if they're developing pain in their face which is an early sign of a sinus infection those kind of things would be a reason for someone to come in if people have all the typical cold symptoms and a really sore throat unless they work with children or with the public they probably aren't also going to have strep throat and we've certainly been doing a lot of rapid strep tests in our clinic and have only had a few positives recently. So although it's out there, there's also a cold out there right now that has quite a sore throat with it and there's nothing much you can do other than keep your fluids up, gargle with a bit of salt water, and ride it out. Um, So it would be someone getting better and then getting worse and developing a fever that would make me wonder if there was something else going on. Someone developing bad ear pain after a number of days. Someone starting to develop shortness of breath or coughing up green phlegm again after a number of days. There are very few people who should be seen in the first week, in all honesty, regardless of whether they're pretty much bedridden or whether it's symptoms of a cold because the vast majority of the time any actual infections are what we call secondary infections and they take a while to develop Mm -hmm. the ones that are bacterial and that might respond to antibiotics there are still a lot of people who don't seem to know that antibiotics aren't going to change the symptoms of a cold and quite often, people who've been given antibiotics for a cold before, when I ask them, well, how long did it take you to get better after you got the antibiotics? Well, it probably got better over the course of a week. It's like, well, yeah, then that wasn't the antibiotic that made a difference. Because for the most part, if you have something bacterial within 48 hours, you're feeling significantly better. If it's taking you a week to get better with antibiotics, I can pretty much guarantee you it would have taken seven days if you didn't have them.
1: And I think I know the answer to this one as well, but sometimes people get prescribed antibiotics for certain infections and they will have some left over and they will keep them until they don't feel so hot the next time something else (laughs) happens. And then they might just, you know, pop a few antibiotics just to make sure that this doesn't get worse. Good or bad idea, doctors?
2: (laughs) Well, I think I can speak for both Donna and I (laughs) when I say it's probably not a great idea. I mean, that's how the resistance to antibiotics develops. So I certainly do in my practice. If people need antibiotics, I prescribe them judiciously. And if they need them, I do highly recommend that if they start it, they should finish the antibiotic. Definitely.
1: And I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. Resistance to antibiotics. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Why is that a big deal for me? Why is that important for me?
2: Why is it a big deal? It's a big deal because, so basically, if we develop, we as a society develop resistance to antibiotics, so what that means is if people get prescribed antibiotics frequently, and for conditions where it's not necessary, then bacteria are very, very smart. And they can uh, mutate very, very rapidly. And what's going to end up happening is they're not going to, basically, they're going to be smarter than the antibiotic and the antibiotic isn't going to work for them when they need it to work. So then what ends up happening is the medical system has to come up with stronger and stronger antibiotics to then try and deal with simple infections, which then means down the road that if you get um, hit with an infection that's very, very severe, uh, we may not at some point end up having anything that's going to work, which is a problem.
1: Mm -hmm. No, that's perfect, yeah.
3: So we're already needing to use higher doses of the antibiotics that we do use than when I started in training in order to get the same response. And I think the last time I read an article, there are only one or two new antibiotics that are currently in the testing stream. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a lot coming in through the pipeline. And as Sue said, if we develop resistant bacteria, and therefore people don't respond, we will in effect be going back to pre-antibiotic days. And Anyone who's got their grandparents or great grandparents around can tell them, you know, can ask them to tell them stories about otherwise healthy people who died of the kind of pneumonia that we treat as an outpatient Mm -hmm. because they didn't have any way to kind of combat that.
0: Mm -hmm. And the impact on the gut is huge. Mm -hmm. We spoke about that in our last podcast with Dr. Bubbs, and he said it could take, for some of the less healthy individuals, what was it, nine months or a year? For a gut to repopulate after one round of antibiotics.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, one round of antibiotics can remove, I think you said, up to 30% of your mm. colonies or more. Like, it, it really wipes you out. And when you don't have a... I don't know you can go back and listen to the Mark bulbs podcast. <laughs> uh, we'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> Um, but you know, the less diversity you have in your gut, the more susceptible you're going to be to further infections, diseases, even to gain weight and to just have brain fog, all of these little things. Yeah. It's not good to take a lot of antibiotics.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, we're increasingly aware of the importance of both our gut and our skin flora and anything we do that alters them, especially if it's unnecessary, uh, really just puts a lot of other aspects of our health at risk. Mm Now,
0: one last thing with regards to both flus and colds, to work, work out or not. We have some people who will show up to the gym all bravado two days into their fresh new cold, hacking up a lung, thinking that they are champions for showing up and doing the work when the rest of us would love that they would stay home because they are (laughs) still quite contagious. Uh, So where does exercise fall into all of that? So
2: if it's a cold, for the most part, I think, you can kind of listen to your body in terms of that, right? You know, maybe after about four to five days, you're probably good to go back and see how you feel going back to the gym. Um, you're certainly not contagious at that point either. Um, a flu is very, very different, influenza. With influenza, I think you have to actually be very, very careful. And and I generally tell my tell my patients, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, make sure that, because you should be spending you're going to be spending at least four days in bed with Mm -hmm. influenza right and which is going to take a lot out of you because you're not eating a lot you're not drinking a lot during that time period so then really what you should do is you should have at least another the same amount of time to recover your your stores before trying to go back to the gym and then really gradually uh,
3: ramp it up at that Mm -hmm. point that's generally what i recommend to people yeah I agree with that too and with a cold because I mean some people when they get a cold it really is just some congestion and they're otherwise feeling well and other times people are feeling that kind of fatigue they're fighting something off they're under the weather so I usually suggest to people to use the rule of thumb if you have symptoms below the neck like your body feels tired you have a fever you're just not feeling well then wait until those dissipate because again it's just a sign that your body's You know, quite busy fighting something off. Once your symptoms have moved up to just be more congestion type ones and it's four or five days so you're not contagious, then you're free to go ahead. A little bit of a segue, but I've seen quite a, quite a bit of pneumonia over the last couple of years as
2: well, mm-hmm. and interesting, I generally tell people it takes a month to recover after a pneumonia, which people wow. are actually very surprised with, and they expect after a couple of weeks that they're ready to go back, and they try, and they're floored again, so I tell people whether whether they're healthy people, and certainly if they're immunocompromised in any way, it takes longer, but even with a healthy person, I tell them, give it a month, It doesn't mean you can't do anything for a month, but just expect you to, at the end of your normal work day or whatever, that you're going home to bed as opposed to doing what you normally would do.
3: And I think there was a study that was done a number of years back where they were following people who had pneumonia forward and getting them to kind of pay attention to their symptoms. And when did the kind of last level of fatigue lift? And it was up to six weeks in people Uh who were otherwise well. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they got to 80% pretty fast most of them but that last 20% which is often where we push ourselves took quite a long time yeah. so I let people know that ahead of time too it's like look the infection will be under control pretty quickly but don't expect to feel 100% for at least a month and maybe up to a month and a half
1: yeah and I mean I guess that makes sense with pneumonia it's the lungs and when you're working out you're demanding a lot of oxygen right so yeah. that, that yeah. makes total sense yeah. so on another quick little segue back to the flu. Flu shots, yay or nay?
3: Well, it depends on how you (laughs) feel about getting influenza. (laughs) Personally, I've had it twice, so I know what it feels like. It does feel like you've been hit by a truck uh, and you really don't want to get out of bed and it's not a very comfortable way to pass your time. So the first time I got it was before I started getting flu shots. And then the second time I got it was a few years ago when we had a late start to the flu season. And I just, I actually just forgot to get my flu shot. And I got a little uh, reminder infection that this was a good thing. (laughs) People sometimes worry about getting the flu shot because they think that, you know, it doesn't work very well. Or they, you know, don't like getting something you have to get every year. And they think it's, you know, it can't be good for you to have to get it every year. And the thing to remember is that the circulating strains of influenza, which, as Sue said, viruses are sneaky, like bacteria, and they change and evolve over time. They change and evolve on a year-to-year basis, both individual strains and the strains that happen to be in the community. It takes about six months to make vaccine that we can then use in a given season. So it's always a bit of a calculated best guess as to which strains are going to be around. We look to the Southern Hemisphere that has a flu season offset from ours to get a good idea. And sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong. Um, So the years where it's not a good match... It's true it won't be particularly effective. The years when it is a good match, it's probably about 80 to 85% effective most of the time. The lowest, if it's a good match, would be, I guess, around 60%. That's still pretty good odds. If you told me I had an 80% chance of winning a lottery ticket, I'd be buying one today. (laughs) correct. And certainly my own personal experience, and I know that's an anecdote, but I'm working in the front lines in a all, part-time in a busy walking clinic as well, is if I've had my shot for influenza, then I don't get influenza. I will still get colds. That's people's other objection. It's like, well, I got a flu shot last year and I still got sick. <laughs> and then you ask them a little bit more information, you realize they're getting cold. So they're expecting a bit too much. But what it's preventing is that you've been hit by a truck and you're in bed for four days and taking two weeks to get better infection, not every infection that's going around, including the stomach flu or stomach gastroenteritis. Mm Anything to
1: add? Sue? (laughs) Sue likes this question. Sue's
3: looking at me skeptically. No, no, no. No, (laughs) no, no, Donna. Everything you said
2: is absolutely factually correct. (laughs) And? (laughs) There's there's, there's really no but. You know, a lot of us are in in the public a lot, right? And so if you're in the public, if you travel by subway, if you, you know, deal with people on a regular basis, then you are at some point going to be exposed to a flu virus. And, um... My sense is that in general, I think your immune system is very much connected to diet. And if you're, if you're eating fresh vegetables and fresh fruits and, and that kind of a thing, then your immune system tends to be quite good. In the wintertime, it's tough for us here in Canada to be able to get foods that are really top quality in terms, of, mm-hmm. in terms of freshness, which probably means that for most of us, our immune systems aren't functioning as well as they should in the wintertime. So it you know, why not get the flu shot to give you a little bit of added, um, you know, protection, uh, because your immune system may not be doing its job completely effectively. Mm
3: -hmm. The other thing I would say is that the people who are most at risk from getting influenza of getting very sick and having complications are children under the age of five, and people over the age of 65, even if they're extremely well, because again, our immune systems age with us, and they're effectiveness is not as robust as it was when we were younger and so the chance of getting a pneumonia or some other complication associated with influenza is greater if you're either very young and you are still learning the various bacteria and viruses in the world or you're older and you're not as efficient and equally I recommend that otherwise healthy adults who I really do when they ask me if they should get the flu shot say how do you feel about getting influenza right Mm -hmm. you know you will probably recover well with it but this is what it will do but if they have children under the age of five in their life or elderly people in their life then they should get the flu shot to minimize the chance of them bringing Mm -hmm. the flu to them Um, there was a recent study showing that up to 70 percent of people who generate antibodies to influenza do not themselves get sick so people can, for sure, be exposed and fight it off, but they're still contagious for a period of time. And during that time when they're contagious, while they're developing antibodies, they're at risk of passing it on to vulnerable people. Yeah. Yeah. Nasty carriers. Yeah, nasty.
1: <laughs> and Freya and I were actually having this conversation a few weeks ago. I grew up in a really small town, and I, I think I asked Freya when she, last time she got a flu shot, and I don't even remember their flu shots existing up until a few years ago, basically, when I kind of moved to toronto i didn't really even know about them and i was like they're a new thing and she's like ah about that
0: yeah he asked if flu shots even existed when we were teens and i looked at him like he is he kidding this time (laughs) and i said no and he goes i don't remember them as a teen and i vividly remember them as a teen and even remember them in elementary school but we figured that some of that maybe had to do with what was going on in a very very tiny town yeah, just very
1: tiny population density, and it's just the mm-hmm. urgency to get the shot. Maybe just wasn't big, but when you live a in a m- live in a huge city like Toronto, and you're on the subway, and there's people everywhere, yeah. it's definitely yeah. a more important that you protect yourself.
3: Yeah. yeah. It used to also be something people had to pay for. It's been, what, maybe 10 years or so, maybe maybe longer, uh, since the government mm-hmm. covered the flu shot for all age groups as opposed to just under 5 or cool. over 65 or mm-hmm. with complicating conditions, heart conditions, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. So uh, it may be that you were less aware because it was something that was, there was less of a consensus on that it yeah. was useful for everybody yeah. to get.
1: It's also fully possible I got it every year and just didn't remember. <laughs> and
2: I think I think public health also, public health campaigns also probably are, yes. are a little more, you know, yeah. a little more visible than they were before, yeah. I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely are, including one right now that's I find quite abrasive. It's a lemon dripping with red. Oh. And it says, have you checked your pee? And I'm oh, kind of like, this okay. is I terrible. That one. <laughs> it's very effective, though. It's very that effective. One is very effective. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, are they talking about blood and urine, or are they talking about a horror movie? I'm not sure.
1: So people need reminders to go see a doctor if they're peeing blood? Yes. This is, yes, that's what cl- has Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, on the topic of winter itself and the temperatures out there can you let us know what Raynaud's is and then what somebody with Raynaud's may need to do to better manage it
3: so Raynaud's essentially is when your blood vessels in your hands and your feet overreact to a temperature change so all of us if we go out in the cold our, su- our surface blood vessels will constrict in order to keep the warmth in the core of our body to make sure that our internal organs are, are warm uh, and can do their jobs. Cause we can function and use our hands and feet well enough even if they're not getting quite as much blood flow and oxygen as might be optimal. So what happens in someone with Raynaud's is instead of just their hands and feet getting cold, sometimes their blood vessels like completely shut down and their hands will go white and then they'll go blue because they're not getting much oxygen. And then ultimately, you know, they tend to, the body has a reflex mechanism to make sure that it doesn't lose peripheral digits and body parts and so it will open it up and reperfuse enough to make sure that someone doesn't get frostbite for example and so then they'll all of a sudden turn red and often be quite uncomfortable and then the cycle can repeat itself so that can happen to all of us if we're out unprotected in really cold weather but people with rain can get that at temperatures that wouldn't bother most of us like a breeze on a summer's day (laughs) <laughs> Seriously. Some. Yes, for some. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you know how prevalent Raynaud's is? Mm-hmm. I know that at least it's one in four based on this room. <laughs> well I mean, that great. Right. <laughs> I don't
3: think it's that high, but
1: I hashtag statistics. <laughs>
3: yeah maybe two to five percent okay. in a small number of cases yeah. it's associated with other inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and mm-hmm. lupus and you know other conditions like that the majority of people with it just have isolated Raynaud's syndrome it's not necessarily a marker and I think it's relatively common i think there are people who have it who you know just learn to get gloves and mitts on sooner and wear right. wool socks and warm boots and get teased by people for like it's not that cold out and just yeah. kind of cope with it and they don't have a name for it mm-hmm. right mm-hmm.
1: and so if somebody out there has rain notes how do they manage it
2: um most of it is as donna mentioned um it's basically just physical things that you can do you know so so keep your hands and your feet warm so preemptively you know so don't wait don't go out and wait till your hands get cold before you put your gloves on so make sure that all of that stuff is done before you leave and um that's basically how you would for the most part deal with it it in, in fairly severe cases, there are some medications that can be used for it. Um, you know, that's probably something that people can speak with their own physicians about if they feel like it's really necessary. But for most people, what I recommend is the physical stuff. Mm
3: -hmm. And another tip that one of my good friends is a skier and she tends to run cold anyway, but her strategy for making sure her hands and feet are warm is to wear extra layers on her torso. Yeah. And I just decided, you know, that sounds like a very reasonable strategy. Like if you're keeping your core really warm anyway, then there's less risk of mm. other things needing to shut down as much and being in you're sending warmer blood out. And um, she's right. So she, despite running cold, can be on the slopes for hours when friends and family are heading in to go and warm up. And she stays toasty warm because she's probably got about three more layers on than most people do. Mm -hmm. This just popped to mind, something for feet.
0: With rainbows, a lot of people are going to just wrap tons of stuff around hands and feet, which intuitively we think, oh, that's going to make it warmer. (laughs) With most of our boots in North America, they're too tight. And so as soon as we have our, our toe box, that's somewhat limited by boots, like, you know, those boots that you push your foot into and it's like, Oh, this is so cozy. That actually makes it way worse Mm -hmm. because you've now just created a, a little foot coffin and you've got tons of wonderful padding around you, but now circulation can't work the way it's supposed to work your foot can't disperse force the way it's supposed to disperse it either So the same is true with a lot of our other shoes but in winter especially from a circulation standpoint those boots that you like squeak your feet into and think oh yeah these are going to be warm are the exact opposite like having a boot with room actually allows you to keep your toes
3: intact yeah it allows warm air to circulate yeah yeah Yeah. for sure and definitely my my winter boots are more like mucklucks. They're not very constraining in their, I have wide feet, but they still have room for my feet to move around and I'm toasty in them for sure.
0: I'm going to ask a ridiculous question. We heard this years ago where somebody said, I heard that if I take out gluten, it will cure my Raynaud's. (laughs)
3: Discuss. That's going to be a pretty short discussion. I've
0: never heard that before. Didn't you know taking out gluten can cure the world of everything, including a circulatory issue?
1: Yeah, it'll solve everything, guys. You won't get the flu. You won't get cold. You won't get Raynaud's. It's great. What about frostbite? (laughs) Speaking of Raynaud's, how cold is too cold for just anyone? So in Canada, it gets super cold out. When do you stay inside?
3: Well, I'm from Manitoba. So
2: I have a different... (laughs) And I grew up in northern New Brunswick, so... Yeah.
1: So you're good people to ask.
2: Well, we kind of went out in anything, Dane, to be honest with you. Well, I mean,
1: I grew up in a small town in southwestern Ontario. I mean, it got cold. You go out. It doesn't really matter.
3: As I often say to people, there's no... And it's not my own saying, obviously. There's no such thing as bad weather, only the wrong clothing. I
1: disagree. (laughs) Freya has (laughs) rainouts.
0: Right. 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 I'm kidding. I just... In large part, I can't remember who it was, but they, one of our clients moved from elsewhere and remarked that in Toronto, people don't like to wear winter clothing in the winter,
3: which I actually think is true. Mm -hmm. I think it's very true as well. Like often we don't have snow and people are wearing shoes, but it's minus 10. Mm -hmm. And if there was snow, they would be wearing boots and they would be warmer. Um, people often wear coats that are like partly open and they just have a light scarf instead of wearing a parka type um, coat and so often people mention to me how cold it is outside and I go you're not dressed for this weather that's the problem you're not wearing winter clothes you know i'm from manitoba and sue from new brunswick snow and cold kind of are closely linked so it took me a while to realize that's why i was feeling cold when we first moved here because i was dressing for what it looked like outside rather than dressing for the actual temperature because i had to learn that there's often a disconnection here in toronto for sure and there are temperatures where um you know, skin can freeze, you know, any exposed skin. It's more in the kind of minus 35 range from what I recall. And again, it depends on whether or not it's windy. Wind obviously, you know, increases the risk of getting frostbite on any exposed skin. But if we're talking about this part of the country, specifically around Toronto, we very seldom get down into that range, you know, northern Ontario and, you know, the prairies and parts of the east coast and so on uh, often get cold enough that people have to be mindful about being outside for any length of Mm -hmm. time.
2: But again I think the key is um, exposed skin. Mm -hmm. You know I think if you're covered then the chances of getting frostbite are fairly slim really.
3: Yeah Yeah,
1: Yeah, Canadians are a weird breed. In my OEC year in high school I didn't wear pants once. I, I was that kid but and my theory was I went from the house, got into the car so I it wasn't out in the cold, I would preheat the car, good to go, and then I would drive to school, and then I would walk from the car into the school, that's it, be inside the school all day long, and then just do the same thing on the way home. And those are the only time I spent outside, and I run very, very hot, so I'm just like, inside, and shorts are great, and it's not like I could have worn pants outside, changed or anything once I got inside, that's just crazy talk, so... We're a weird weird bunch, but I've grown up a lot, guys.
3: Well, and I would say that the male, the Y chromosome tends to take longer to get the extra layer on. I often see men who have very dry skin and chapped and cracked hands wondering what they can do. And the first thing I say is, well, you could wear gloves. And they look at me like, how do you know I don't wear gloves? If I know them well, I just say, you know, there are a few little bits of information that are missing on that smaller chromosome and wearing gloves when it's cold is one of them.
1: I, I would take That's offense. I just there's nothing to take offense to. That's my observation over 30 years of practice and having
3: a number of lovely men in my life. But uh...
1: she is clearly a very well seasoned doctor, folks. She she understands everything,
3: and she has sons.
0: <laughs> yeah, one of which does not wear any of the winter things. Um, so, in other areas of winter, mental health is a big one. So winter blues is kind of what we'll title them. When it comes to sad, can you guys spell out what that is? Sad
2: stands for seasonal affective disorder, and it essentially is a dip in mood. I'm choosing my words carefully here, a dip in mood that happens when we start seeing less light for the most part. So I'm going to ballpark it, it differs for, for various people, but I, I generally say October's around Halloween Mm -hmm. until depending on when spring actually happens, you know, sometimes even April, you know, sometimes even into into May. And it's it's a real thing. It's definitely a real thing. And I have many people in my practice who actually benefit from even simple things that they can do to help with seasonal affective disorder. Vitamin D is a big one, vitamin D, Um, and also the uh, sad lamps that you can get. So those are the those are two things that I actually very highly recommended people and they work they mm-hmm. absolutely work 20 minutes a day with the sad lamps the other thing that I think is important is to actually and th- I recommend this to, to my patients as well is to start these things well before you know so I'll often tell people at the beginning of October start it before make sure your vitamin d levels are up before you get into the time where the you know where the light is is running low and um, it does work it does help a lot of people
3: hmm I find again growing up in Manitoba where winters are cold but very sunny there was one year in my training where we actually had a mild winter but it was overcast a lot of the time and at one point in the hospital we were all just kind of dragging ourselves around and trying to figure out what we could do to cheer each other up and going like what is going on that we're all feeling kind of blah like this was completely new to us and that was the first time in my experience that I'd seen sad written about and we went Oh, yeah. Like it's nice that it's mild, but quite frankly, we'd rather have cold and sunny Mm -hmm. because prior to that, none of us had ever felt that kind of winter blues. Truthfully, in like my whole life till then, this part of the country, if you're in the Toronto area, there is often a lot of dull days and I don't get my I would say my mood doesn't drop, but my motivation and my energy level drop. And even for that, I find a sad light is very helpful. So I'm okay on bright sunny days but if we have a stretch of dull days like we've been having recently I pull out my lamp and I get it on in the morning and it makes a really big difference.
1: Yeah we are currently sitting in a room that has two satellites Mm -hmm. in it Uh, and that's the first thing that happens in this home in the morning is Freya is universally up before me so she'll come down and Click on the light and I will join her in a room that is just hammered full of uh, bright lights. And just for people out there, if you're looking for a sad light, what you want to find is a light that has 10,000 lux. Lux is the measurement they use, um, but you want 10,000 lux, 15 to 20 minutes every day, especially if you can start your day with that, it kind of mimics the rising sun and that triggers hormonally in the brain. Melatonin will get shoved down and then that will help you sleep at night just by doing one thing first thing in the morning.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely don't use them Um, in the afternoon or evening Mm -hmm. or use them to the point where you feel jittery because that Mm -hmm. is actually possible Mm -hmm. i've done that when i forgot to turn it off (laughs) i got deep into work i was like man i feel like i've had too much caffeine and then realized oh no the light's still (laughs) on (laughs) can you guys give us any suggestions for physical activity that may help the winter blues we generally recommend people find a way to get at least 20 minutes of aerobic activity because the research just from a mental health and anxiety perspective is, mm-hmm. is quite helpful and it gets you outside instead yeah, yeah. of on a treadmill in the gym or instead of l- even lifting weights in the gym. We'd rather in the winter that people make sure every day get some outside and walking. But we wondered if you guys had any input there. Actually, that's what I, I was ex- going to
2: say that actually, Freya, is outside. I think outside is very important, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just to get the layers on as we were talking about before. And, uh, you know, even a 20 minute walk. Um, you know is will do wonders if you can do it on a a consistent basis.
3: Mm -hmm. And I think you know first of all whatever natural light is there you are taking advantage of that at a time when there isn't as much and when before work and after work is dark so it's not like in the the lighter months when you can at least get some light on your face by being outside at almost any time that you're awake. Um, But then the other thing is you know we have a tendency I think to have somewhat lower energy in the winter and to isolate ourselves a little bit more. Just getting out and going for a walk connects you with the world again and you know even if you're just saying hello to someone on the street and seeing your neighbor or just being out and Being around where other people are moving around and living their lives connects you a little bit with the outside world. And that's a good thing too. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Nature and community. Two really, really yeah. big things that within the winter months, especially in Canada, we see a decrease, a drop for pretty much everyone just yeah. due to the fact that it's it's cold and sometimes snowy. So you just, yeah. whether you believe it or not, you don't go out as much as you do in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And those are two very key things that trigger the brain to release hormones in the proper manner. So yeah. when you don't have those, again, that's why we have these winter blues and that's why in the summer you might feel a little bit better.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We're all uh, we're all social beings, yes. and we need that really, yes. yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Even
3: introverts,
2: <laughs> in measured doses.
0: <laughs> your time is up. You are dismissed. <laughs> uh, are there any dietary recommendations that you guys use yourselves or talk to your patients about? What we see is. There's a trend towards going away from fresh foods, which makes sense. There's less of it available. And then because of the lower energy, we also see people going for convenience foods. And that to me is more of an issue, like not having as many fresh foods, but still having squashes and and cooked things is no problem. But a lot of people go to convenience foods mm-hmm. instead because of the effort involved. Is there anything that you guys see or recommend for your patients?
2: I, that's interesting what you said about convenience foods. I'm not sure. I find what people go towards a lot is carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um,
1: yes. Right. Yes. So Th- Those are conveniences. Conve- okay, if that's, if that's what you mean <laughs> yes. by convenience. Yes.
2: Absolutely, sure. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, I don't think that helps anything, actually. Sure. <laughs> it doesn't help, you know, it doesn't help your energy. It doesn't help no. your mood. It doesn't help mm-hmm. your It really doesn't help anything. So if you can possibly you know, I think warming foods are great in the winter. Mm -hmm. So soups are great. I encourage people to try and use that leftover turkey carcass to make their, you know, to make their broth with and then make soups out of that. So you can Mm -hmm. get your vegetables and all of that in as much as possible. Is it more time-consuming? Maybe it's a bit more time-consuming. But, you know, you can make a big pot of soup at the beginning of the week and, Mm -hmm. you know, have it a few days. So that's generally what I... So I still Mm -hmm. do recommend people go for the fruits, for the the vegetables for the most part and Mm -hmm. warmer foods possibly, Mm -hmm. but uh, try and stay away from the carbs as much as possible.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and carbs are a short-term hit. So, for example, in the winter blues, when we're feeling a little bit down and not not feeling great having some, something sweet or some quick, convenient carbs that gives us a quick rush of dopamine. Mm-hmm. So that's going to make us feel really, really good for the time being, but then we're going to get an even deeper crash into the crater after that happens. Mm-hmm. So this is why, yes, I understand why people do that, but it's really good to know that that's the pattern that happens. Mm-hmm. And so inst- if when your brain's triggering you, when you're on the couch to say, Oh, just, you know, eat some chips because it's easy. You don't have to move. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I could do that. Or I could actually just go outside and go up to the you know, grocery store or walk to wherever and grab an apple or something. I mean, it's, it's more effort, mm-hmm. but it's actually going to make you feel a lot better. You will then sleep better and it starts the cascade in the proper direction. So I know it's, it's a tough road to hoe, but just to know that those are the patterns that happen, there's nothing wrong with you, mm-hmm. it just helps to understand that that's, that's what's going on. And it happens to all of us.
3: Yeah, I agree. It's almost like we have this urge to hibernate in the winter, except that we don't. So we're not like curled up, sleeping in a den, burning off what we stored. Um, So learning how to resist that. Planning ahead, you know, spending a bit of time on the weekend to actually plan your menu, to chop up the squashes and the root vegetables and that kind of thing that truthfully do take a bit more time to prepare than, say, salad does in the summer months. Mm -hmm. Um, But that also are seasonal foods that are the foods that most likely are Bodies evolved to eat in the winter time anyway when fresh stuff wasn't available, if we lived in a climate that had very clear seasons. We lived in England for a number of years, and the interesting thing was that the greengrocer, you couldn't get salad stuff in the winter. Like it just didn't grow then, so Mm -hmm. you couldn't buy it. They didn't have the same kind of organization in terms of food supplies North America had where you could buy salad stuff in the winter. But I just got used to eating and cooking a lot of root vegetables in the winter months. And it started to kind of feel more right, actually, that we, you know, and I still find I enjoy salads in the winter. I don't feel cold to them in the same way. So I'll have you know broccoli and green beans and Mm -hmm. things like that to get some greens in and then cut up the other colors too. Mm -hmm. Yeah we certainly eat less of the green stuff and more of the cooked
0: stuff. So with the lower energy in the winter months are there any changes to sleep considerations?
3: Well I think it's important that people get enough sleep Mm -hmm. period Mm -hmm. and people often don't at any time of the year. I think it wears on people more in the winter months if they're not getting enough sleep than if they don't get enough sleep in the summer months and I think some of that honestly my dad's side of the family's from Iceland and I have relatives there and they talk about how little they sleep in the winter or in the summertime and how much more they sleep in the winter time uh, when there's a very dramatic difference it's almost 24 hours without sunlight in the winter and almost and 24 hours really with daylight of some kind in the summer months and when I was traveling there in the summer like I would find myself going at 10 o'clock at night while well, I'm kind of feeling a bit hungry and tired I wonder why and then I'd realize what time it was and it's like I just been going and I'm a morning person so that would not be normal for me to do that mm-hmm. so I had to start actually paying attention to the clock to kind of try to keep on a little bit of a rhythm so I didn't get too strung out but for sure the sun is energizing and then for sure the dark does tend to kind of I don't know if we require more sleep in the winter, but I do think we feel better if we get it. Right.
2: That's what I was going to say as well, is I'm not sure that we need more mm-hmm. sleep in the wintertime. And then the question is, do you, do you feel better if you get more sleep? And I don't know if that's no. necessarily true. I think then it's, it comes down to diet and, and exercise. Yep. So I think that if you maintain the same lifestyle in the winter that you did in the summer, mm. I'm not sure that your sleep will change that much.
3: Your sleep requirements actually change that no, much. No, I agree. Mm-hmm. The no, one- I, I don't think you necessarily need more sleep no. in the winter, but I do think it's more important that you get what you need.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
3: And most people... Don't. are not getting enough sleep in the first place
1: And exactly right. and it's winter
3: or summer yeah it <laughs> yeah. starts
1: with that people aren't getting enough sleep in the first place right. the recommendation is seven to nine for adults seven to nine hours for adults in the winter time especially when the sun goes down earlier melatonin may start to you know if you're not flooding your life with a lot of artificial lights and screen in the evenings which lots of people do but because there's more darkness around outside melatonin may be rising a little bit quicker in the evenings that may or in in the mornings you might sleep a little more because there's no light so you might sleep in again it's so it's just what your your brain senses in terms of the light that may be why people feel like they need to be in bed mm-hmm. longer mm-hmm. but again it's seven to nine hours and it's all part of the package: physical activity, mm-hmm. eating well. Yeah. It's it's yeah. your your mm-hmm. body runs on a cycle, so it's just yeah. continuing to move with uh, with all those habits and mm-hmm. listening to your body.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> on that note of sleepiness, <laughs> <laughs> <This> is- <laughs> there's been some legal changes in Canada over the past uh, oh, couple of years okay. in your I clinics. See
3: where you're <laughs> you not know, talking about CPAP machines. No, are you no, we're not?
1: not. But since now that marijuana has yeah. been decriminalized, have you noticed people? People maybe using it a little bit more to induce the soporific effect, effect of trying to sleep more at night. I know people use alcohol sometimes, especially in the winter, which makes your sleep actually worse. Mm-hmm. So not something you want to do. But have you seen an increase in marijuana usage for sleep or just in general?
3: I've probably had a few more people who've been interested in trying it for sleep mm-hmm. uh, now that it's legal, mm-hmm. who might have wondered about it before, but didn't want to deal with having to get yep. it by illegal means. I think the bigger question would be, is it effective? Mm -hmm. And I think we don't have good studies that Mm -hmm. give us that answer. You know, And I think for some people, perhaps it might be. I think some people think that they sleep better with alcohol because they get to sleep with alcohol, but they don't realize that their sleep quality is still not a normal sleep quality and that over time they're going to be feeling tired because they haven't been sleeping well. And I think we don't know if marijuana has the same impact or not. So I think the effectiveness is a question that hasn't yet been answered. And hopefully there are studies underway that will illuminate that in the next number of years.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with Donna. Um the second part of your question, Dane is ha- have I seen an uptake in people using marijuana? Mm-hmm. I I think I've seen more people using it for or what they what they tell me using it for pain and anxiety mm-hmm. more than for sleep necessarily. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, you know and again there is yeah, I mean there's a little bit of evidence for both of those things but mm-hmm. it's not robust at all at this point.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, We watched two friends take the same dose of something when we were away, and we watched a ridiculously different... They they could not have had more different reactions. Mm -hmm. The one was like melted into the couch, just kind of hanging out, chit-chatting. And then the other one was afraid that our other colleague, he... (laughs) behaved as though another colleague of ours was going to kill him like he thought that he was Uh paranoid and so they both taken the same amount of the same type and we watched two humans who otherwise day-to-day are both like you know they're not the same people we're all different but it was just so interesting to watch two brains like completely Mm -hmm. like go in opposite directions And then the other thing that is curious about the THC effect is that most people who smoke pot express some level of congestion. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And that to me, if you're congested, you're not sleeping well. I don't know what the drug effect is. I can't tell like alcohol, we can say it's a long term upper which is why it'll put you to sleep and it'll wake you up at 2 Mm a.m. in a sense, like not fully Mm -hmm. awake, but depending on how much you've had. So we know what the effect is there, but with, with pot alone, if there's a level of congestion, not breathing well, and if you're not breathing well, we know that you're not sleeping well. One of our, our assessments with our clients is checking their breathing in a bunch of different ways, one of which is assessing what their breath is like in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's a self-conducted test. And then the other one is just a series of questions. And congestion will lead you to mouth breathe. Mouth breathe is a stress breathing response. So I'm not really sure if the studies are looking at physiological processes that happen in the body in terms of whether it's arousing you through the night, but they're ignoring the fact that it actually prevents you from nasal breathing, then I'm not really sure Mm. if it, it, like it can put you to sleep, but I'm not really sure if it's actually that great long-term.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I don't think we have the studies on that yet.
0: And again, what you, what you
2: said before as well, in the sense of people react differently, you know, so some people Mm -hmm. have congestion, other people don't have congestion. So we really don't know what's happening. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So again, jury is out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if you want to try that, do it, do it responsibly. But uh, again, if you are using alcohol, do not do that. That definitely doesn't help. But with marijuana, be very careful if you're easing into that.
0: And I'll, I'll note just on the topic of things that will put you to sleep, if that's something people are looking at, like breath work, and then various types of sound and light therapy are crazy effective. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the risk is just that nothing will happen. That's it. That's your risk. And I'm generally more risk averse. I don't like medical or drug inputs. So I prefer taking those approaches that may be slower. They're slower to take hold. They can take like sound and light therapy. Some of the research on the device I use has taken 60 to 90 days. They said like close to three months. Mm -hmm. And my experience was, yeah, around 30. It was actually a little shy of that. I was noticing a really big impact.
2: So Freya, meditation, I find,
1: works quite quickly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Dave has a trick to put himself to sleep that doesn't work for me, the word one.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, basically cognitive word jumbling. Think of a word that has to do with sleep, first of all. So nap or bed or sleep, and then take the first letter. So B, if I'm thinking about bed, then think about B, and then think about every single word you can think of that starts with B. So I start alphabetically with B, A. Like, B-A, bad, okay, badly. Uh, and just keep going through the alphabet. I fall asleep almost immediately because I'm so bored with my thoughts. <laughs> I've never gotten past the second letter, ever. Yes. <laughs>
2: uh, I'm not sure. I That might stimulate me too much, actually, trying it does, to think And about that's what it. happens to Freya. <laughs>
0: I was like, and now I'm thinking about this and this, and oh, and that led me down this rabbit hole, yeah, yeah.
1: See, I find that that works when I'm really preoccupied with a specific topic or something that I I can't stop thinking about, I distract myself with that. Typically, I have no thoughts in my brain and I just sleep. But if I'm distracted with something I can't stop thinking, then I play that little game and inevitably I zonk out somewhere along the line. So very helpful.
0: Yeah, the sound and light stuff, actually what I noticed is prevented the wakefulness I was getting. So I'd fall asleep, but Mm -hmm. i have major periods of insomnia at like 1 a.m 2 a.m 3 a.m 4 a.m so that after the sound light therapy just pieced mm. out which was really nice so we do have a few wrap-up questions and we know we've asked you these questions before <laughs> what is the most impactful book you've read in the last year
1: it's been a full year so i'm sure you have another answer now right <laughs> <laughs>
2: The only one that I can think of that, that I most recently read is a book on Iyengar yoga.
0: Oh, interesting
2: it's fantastic it's absolutely fantastic I've recently become very interested actually mm-hmm. and this is a book that gives you it's not just the poses but it tells you about the history it tells you about mm-hmm. Patanjali who's the guy that you know sort of if you will started yoga so you know mm-hmm. and it gives you a really good background which to me is
3: actually fascinating
0: yeah yeah we like that the why behind things yeah
3: So I have quite a few books that I'm just starting out on that I think are going to be very impactful books, but I'm just starting to read them. And I have to say this last year, apart from reading a little bit more sports medicine information in general, I was finding the impact of all of the events of the world and the news of the day on me was kind of getting to me a little bit. So I really focused on reading good literature Mm -hmm. and not darker literature which you know otherwise I think can have a lot of value but literature that ultimately was uh, about the human condition that was uplifting that kind of made me feel like I wanted to get back to that book and make sure I got off the computer in the evening and spend some time reading every day so Mm -hmm. there were quite a number of good books that I read this year and that was kind of my mind medicine Mm was I needed a break from and also uh, you know just difficult things people at work were going through. I needed my time in the evening to be about recharging my mm-hmm. human batteries rather than my uh, intellectual ones. I think that's
0: great to take a break from those. I get into the intellectual books all the time. That's I love them.
1: And she tells me about them.
0: <laughs> so Dane doesn't have to read them, really, because <laughs> I just <laughs> recite them. Uh, although I would say... <laughs> I did read fiction over the last two weeks, like over the Christmas break, I think I read like three or four different books. And one of them was fiction, but it kept me up past my bedtime. That's what fiction does to me. It's exciting and it's fun because it takes you into like a different world or a different time rather. But the challenge was that I couldn't, like I I couldn't put it down. Whereas reading about physiology to me is like, it's calming and like it's fun because it's like a puzzle. But some fiction books are just so good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that you literally can't put it down. Yeah. That's my problem yeah. as well. And yeah. then I was up yeah, anyway. So
2: I read a, I read a good uh Jeffrey Eugenides, I don't know if you know that oh, author, well. but he has a book of short stories, which helps with that problem
1: <laughs> quite great. dramatically actually. I so. <laughs> will do that. <laughs> Exactly. Got 15 minutes before bed, go knock at a short story. Perfect.
0: (laughs) No, that's perfect, actually. Because I told Dayton, I was like, I'll read, I'm just going to read another couple pages. And then an hour and a half later, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) I guess I should go to bed.
1: (laughs) This is Freya being bad, everyone. Yes. So, ladies, what is your... One non-negotiable self-care tool or habit may something that you do in the winter time specifically, maybe not, but we've covered some topics today that help us with the winter stuff. So
3: I think my go-to is pretty much the same in the winter as it is in the summer. It's to get some exercise yep. in on a regular basis. I do find sometimes in the winter, I need to take it down a notch. Like I just get that sense that to be pushing to either lift more, or run faster, whatever, just feels like it's pushing my body yep. at a time when, you know, it might not be at its mm-hmm. um, greatest ebb. Um, but that's okay. I still make a point of getting out. Sometimes I'll walk instead of run, for example, but still get out and go for a brisk walk and, uh, get the exercise in. Move daily. Yeah. It's, it's the same with
2: me. I have, for me, it's my, it's my bicycle. So I have my bike set up in my, in my, in my basement (laughs) (laughs) on a trainer. So in the, in the, uh, once the weather is not appropriate for me outside, I'm downstairs on my, and so that's totally non-negotiable.
0: Keeps me sane (laughs) in front of a satellite. Mm. And last (laughs) but not least, if you had five minutes with somebody, what would be one thing you would encourage them to do in the winter to manage their health? a magic wand. (laughs) Uh,
3: I think I would encourage them to get outside. I think that getting some fresh air, getting whatever light is available on your skin, uh, being connected to the world Mm -hmm. is really, it's important to us all the time, but it is something that people tend to drop in the winter and I don't think it serves them well. Mm -hmm. So just, even if they just, you know, get out onto their porch or in front of their building, Mm -hmm. you know, once they're out, if they're well-dressed, then it's easy to get moving, but it's just get outside every day.
1: 100%.
2: I, I do agree with Donna. I, the, the other thing, and par, it's partly what Donna said, is um, get some downtime. You know, get some downtime every day, and we, we don't do that enough, and so maybe getting your downtime is going outside, you know, or getting some exercise, or maybe it's another, it's, it's, a, it's in a different way. Maybe it's reading a book, but whatever it tends to be, try and build that into your day.
1: That is great advice. As always, this is the second time we've had you on the show, and we thank you so much for uh, swinging by and covering some of these winter topics with us.
0: It was my pleasure. (laughs) And mine as well. (laughs) Including on little to no sleep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know this isn't Cabo, but I hope you had a good time. (laughs) All right, ladies, thank you so much for stopping by, and we'll catch everybody next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.